0: If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open it to Judges. Judges chapter 3. Last week, on Sunday morning, we went over the first part of Judges chapter 3, and we're going to continue in our study tonight by reading Judges chapter 3, starting from verse 12. Judges chapter 3. And says this. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He gave Eglon king of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjaminite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him to Eglon, king of Moab, with tribute money. Ehud made himself a double-edged sword 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king called for silence and all his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his room upstairs where it was cool. Ehud said, I have a word from the Lord for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade, and Eglon's fat closed in over it, so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly. And Eglon's insides came out. Yehud escaped by the way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. Yehud had gone when Eglon's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought that he was relieving himself in the cool room. Servants waited until they became worried and saw that he had still not opened the doors of the upstairs room. And so they took the key and opened the door. And there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while the servants waited. He crossed over the Jordan near the carved images and reached Sarah. After he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down with him from the hill country, and he became their leader. He told them, follow me. Because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him, captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all strong and able bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land was peaceful 80 years. After Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anath, became judge. He delivered Israel by striking down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. God, thank you for the word that you've shown us in the book of Judges. Help us as we reflect on your word to submit ourselves to it, to be aware of the challenges that that it reveals, that to submit to the exposure of our pride that we might even see in this text, or the laziness that we might see in this text, so that we'll be able to enjoy you all the more as you seek to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you have idols? Okay, do any of you guys have idols? Now, For some of us, we might think of idols as wooden carved images that we have in a corner of the room with candles that we might lie prostrate before for several minutes. But for the rest of us who understand the bigger purpose behind idols or something that might be the object of our affections, do you have idols? For me, last week, the idol for me has been Pokemon Go. I can't stop playing it. I was out for three hours every night, was wasting several hours every day just running around trying to catch these digital things on my phone, and I had to delete them. Now that sounds absurd until I look at all the hype that's going on with the NBA offseason and all the players being traded. These are men that are throwing a rubber ball inside a metal circle. And there's hundreds of millions of dollars being spent on these people. What are your idols? For some of us, we work so hard every single day that even when we're not on the clock, our mind is constantly on our work and we're restless. What are your idols? For some of us, we might be so obsessed with our children or with our family in order to protect this perfect image of how we need to present ourselves or look, Because our family has to be perfect. Otherwise, our lives aren't perfect. So what are your idols? This morning, when you look in the passage uh, in Judges here, we see an example of idolatry. And using clever sarcasm and irony, we could actually see here how foolish we look when we have idols instead of turning our affections towards God. So here's the main idea of the passage. To kill sin and false idols in our lives. To kill sin and false idols in our lives. And there's three ways that this passage tells us to kill sin, or three steps that we need to take in order to kill sin and false idols in our lives. Firstly, to wake up. To wake up. The second step, then, is to take action. And lastly, the third step is to keep going. To keep going. And that is how we kill sin and false idols in our lives. Look at verse 12. The Israelites, again, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. See, in last week, in the Sunday morning, we talked about Othniel. And how Cush and Rishithaim took over the nation of Israel and then Othniel was raised up by the Lord as a mighty deliverer to deliver the people back from their captivity to this evil king. And we see in the previous verse, in verse 11, that the land was peaceful for 40 years. Things were going well. But after Othniel, son of Kenaz, dies, Israelites turn right back to the evil that they've done. They become complacent again. They do what is evil in the Lord's sight. And more than that, we can actually see a progression in their depravity compared to the previous time. Look onwards from verse 12. He gave Eglon king of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of a city of Palms. The Israelites served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. So there's two pictures to see here. Firstly, we can see that the Israelite people were held in captivity to Eglon longer than they were to cushan Rishatham. cushan Rishatham took over the nation of Israel for eight years. Eglon takes over the nation of Israel for 18 years. The second thing that we can see is that they took possession of the city of Palms. Now, geographically, the city of Palms is right next to the nation of Moab. So it makes sense that if you're going to take over the nation, that you would start with the closest city next to you. And that also seems fairly obvious. Why does the author put the city of Palms here? Well, the city of Palms is a picture of what the nation's name actually is. In the same way that Los Angeles is a city of angels, the city of Palms is actually Jericho. See, So when the author is saying that Eglon, king of Moab gathered together the Malachites and the Ammonites and took over the city of Palms, what he's actually saying is that the act of Israel taking over Jericho and Joshua and taking conquest of the land is starting to get reversed. The thing that they were called to do is starting to happen in the opposite way. So we can start to see the downward spiral of the nation of Israel. But it gets worse. Look at verse 15. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he raised up Ehud, son of Gerah, a left-handed Benjaminite, as a deliverer for them. It says, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. What does that mean? It means that the Israelites cried out after the 18 years. They didn't cry out right away. They waited. They actually let themselves stay captive for 18 years until they actually cried out to the Lord. Maybe they just decide to let things happen and ride it out. Or maybe they thought, you know, God is a good God. He'll obviously provide a deliverer like he did with Othniel before. And they don't feel the intensity of what has actually occurred. The very word of God is not being followed through. Wickedness is winning and they're asleep You see, we need to wake up to the reality in which we're in. Some of us might have idols or sins that we're not even aware of. Or maybe we're aware of them and we're just waiting for God to do something. Or maybe you're waiting until you grow more personally, until you become a more mature person. Or until you grow more spiritually before you fight your sins. Maybe there's a habitual sin in your life that you know of, that you're refusing to acknowledge as your dirty little secret or as this elephant in the room that you're ignoring. Maybe it's your pride and you're refusing to acknowledge it. And you know it's there and you're constantly self-obsessed, but you don't really think about the gravity of what you're doing. Or maybe it's more obvious and because culture allows for certain things that you think that it's okay too. Like sports. I'll go back there. Right? Sports is a great example. If you can fill stadiums with tens of thousands of people and people planning their trips around how they're going to get to the tailgate, how they're going to party, how they're going to have another tailgate after the party, then you can definitely plan on how you're going to get to the Sunday morning gathering in time Amen. and not five minutes late. Subtle rebuke to some people there, right? You see, we have to wake up to the reality of what's around us. We have to know what sins we're in. Because here's the truth. Christian, if you think that there's no sin in your life right now that you need to fight, or that there's no idol in your life right now that you need to kill, then it's winning. Because you have no idea that it's there. See, in the screw table Letters, C.S. Lewis says that there's two methods that demons will have in trying to manipulate people. In the Eastern world, the spiritual forces are incredibly strong. So you'll see supernatural things happen, people demon-possessed, whirlwinds occurring out of nowhere, in order to scare the people out. But in the Western world, Satan will allow himself to go into the background and convince you that the supernatural isn't actually there, and then from there begin to slowly pull little strings here and there in order to manipulate you and grab hold of you. Does Satan have a foothold on your heart? See, we need to examine ourselves and wake up to the reality in which we're in. So how do we do that? Well, the first thing that we need to do is that we need to examine God's Word. And see what actually is sin and isn't sin. Amen. See, you, we can even go as far as to start to take our own morality and place it as God's law. And we could start to make rules that aren't actually in the Bible. At the same time, we might try to justify things that are very clearly sin. By ignoring the truths that are in the text. So we need to read God's word. Another way that we can do this as a church is to remind each other about the Lord. To wake each other up. If you see a brother in sin, and they're not able to see because they're clouded by the sin that they're in, or by their own idolatry, you have an obligation to go call them out and remind them about the Lord. You have to do it. You have to wake up. You can't afford to waste 18 years like the Israelites did. You have to cry out. So that's the first way that we kill sin and false idols, to wake up to the reality of sin and false idols. The second way that we do this is by taking action, by taking action. Look at verse 15. So then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjaminite, as a deliverer for them. And the Israelites sent him to Eglon, king of Moab, with tribute money. So Ehud is a left-handed Benjaminite. Now, why is that significant? Well, for two reasons. Firstly, if you're a Benjaminite, then that means that you are next in line in terms of the order of conquest after Judah. So we see Othniel, who's a Judahite, go out and start to deliver the Israelite people. And now you're going to see the Benjaminite, Ehud, go out and conquer the people. But there's also a play on words here that we don't know about. See, the word Benjamin means to be the son of the right hand. And Ehud is left-handed. See, so the author is kind of trying to play a joke here and let you know that Ehud is using his uniqueness. So he's a unique human being. No other person would be able to do this very thing. You see, God uses our uniqueness to be able to fight battles. See, all of us have unique gifts from the Spirit that is given to us. And we need to use them to help each other. Because as we have strengths, other people also have weaknesses. Ehud has a unique opportunity here with his left-handedness to be able to deliver God's people. And we also have unique gifts to be able to help one another in fighting sin. So let's read on to see how Ehud uses his uniqueness to fight sin. Verse 16, Ehud made himself a double-edged sword, 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to Eglon king of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king called for silence, and all his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his room upstairs where it was cool. Ehud said, I have a word from the Lord for, for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade and Eglon's fat closed in over it so that Eglon did not withdraw the sword from his belly. And Eglon's insides came out. Eglon escaped by way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of their upstairs room behind him. Wow. So Eglon, uh, Eglon is this very, very large man. He's a big boned man. And he's sitting there as throne. And Ehud comes in. And the tradition would be when another person would come in to enter the throne in order to protect the king. They would always check your hilt to make sure that you don't have a weapon there. And traditionally, people would have it on their left side or on their left thigh because they're right-handed. But because Ehud is left-handed, he puts it on his right side. And nobody checks your right side. So when he goes in there, he's able to bring his sword with him and enact justice on the king of Eglon. Now, look at verse 20. When Ehud approaches him while he's sitting alone, he's, what does he say? Does he say, I have a sword for you? Or I have death for you? Or I have justice for you? What does he say? I have a message. The CSB would say, I have a word from God for you. See, Ehud's primary use actually isn't even his sword, it's God's word. See, the author of Judges here is trying to paint a picture for us to understand that the way that we kill sin in our lives isn't by practical means in terms of actual violence like Peter. The way that we enact justice, the way that we fight sin, is by using God's Word. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Which says this, For the Word of God is living and effective, and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and the thoughts of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now flip back with me to Judges chapter 3 and look at verse 16. See, Ehud makes himself, and he made himself, a double-edged sword, 18 inches long. Can you see the image that they're trying to paint here? Ehud is using the Word of God. He's using a double-edged sword to kill this king. You see, if you try to kill sin through any other means, you will fail. Maybe you think that you'd be able to do it. By means of discipline. If I just discipline myself, then I'll be able to kill sin. No. The heart is deceitful. You're fickle. Your mind will always change. You can never discipline yourself so well to be able to deny your sin nature. Maybe you think that another good way would be to flee and not fight sin. Now, there is an element of fleeing sin that we should have. We should run from sin. But if you live in fear of sin, then you're missing the point, aren't you? Who should be feared? God. God should be feared. Sin is not something that we as Christians are afraid of. Jesus died for it. Jesus paid it all. We don't bear the weight of sin anymore. In other words, we should fight sin, not out of our fear for sin, but out of our hatred of sin because of our love for God. Which means that when we use the Word of God, we're actually able to fight it. Whereas if you don't use the Word of God to flee, then you're running in fear from it. And don't do that. Jesus uses God's Word. When we see Jesus being tempted in the desert, and Satan misuses Scripture against him, what does Jesus do? Does he tell Satan to be quiet? Does he try to run away? Does he try to fight Satan with his fists? No. What does he do? He speaks, his word. He speaks scripture. He fights back using God's word. Use God's word as a double edged sword to fight sin. Now, let's read on from verse 23, verse 24. Ehud was gone when Eglin's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought that he was relieving himself in the cool room. The servants waited until they became worried and saw that he had still not opened the door of the upstairs room. So he took the key, opened the doors, and there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. Now, this is a very weird story to think about. You have a really fat king, who gets stabbed with a sword, he swallows up the sword, and then the servants are waiting outside. So, here's some observations on Eglon and his subjects and how it applies to us. First, we can see in verse 17 that Eglon, the king of Moab, is an incredibly fat man. He's really fat. He is obtuse. He's big. And he is, if you think about it, an utterly powerless person. When you think of a king, you think of someone who's strong. Someone who has muscles. Someone who has the body of David Beckham. Not an incredibly fat man. That's not what you think about. Also, you can see in verse 19, that Eglon is not smart. See, Ehud comes to king, the king and he says here in verse 19, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king called for silence, and all his attendants left him. So, think about this. Ehud goes to the king. He's a representative of a nation that Eglon just took over. So, you're a king. You just conquered a nation, and you're demanding a tax, or some form of showing your honor and loyalty to me. So, bring a tribute. And this guy comes to you, the nation that you just conquered, and he tells you, king, I have a secret message for you. And your response is, Okay, everyone who's supposed to protect me, leave the room. Because I have a secret message that I need to hear. And that's really important. Seems like he's a little dull in the head, doesn't he? Eglon is not smart. He is not a smart man. And he's incredibly gullible. You can also see in verse 22, that the handle goes in after the blade, in verse 23, and Eglon's fat closed in over it. So Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly. And Eglon's insides came out. The ESV says, in, in, uh, in another wording, that Eglon's bowels came out. So think about it. Eglon is full of putrid filth. There's a lot of other words that I could use. The NIV goes on to say that his bowels discharged. Think about that. See, Eglon is incredibly fat, he's not smart, and he's full of dung. Now, what is the purpose of this? See, Eglon is actually a representation of our idols. Do you know what the name Eglon stands for? Young calf. Now, what would that call back to? Doesn't that remind us of another time that a young calf was worshipped? Right In Exodus 32, we don't have time to flip there, but the Israelite people, while Moses is up in Mount Sinai speaking to the Lord, constructs a golden calf for them to worship. See, can you see how vile and how dumb our idols look? See, we laugh at the king of Eglon. But here's the truth. Those are your idols. When you look at something else instead of God to be your God, you are looking at something as ridiculous as the king of Eglon. And you can see this continuing with his servants. And the servants are us. Look at verse 24. Ehud was gone when the Eglon's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought that he was relieving himself in the cool room. So think about this. The servants are kicked out after this person who has just been conquered goes up and says that he has a secret message and the king kicks them out. So they go outside of the room and they wait. After a while, they think to themselves, well, gee, I think it's time to check in on the king and see how he's doing. So they walk over to the room, and I'm sure as they're walking towards it, they can smell the disgusting smell of the bowels. So they're sniffing, and they're like, man, this is really bad. And they're standing outside. And in their foolishness, they think that he must be relieving himself. He must be taking care of some business in front of this Ehud guy. right? And he must just be letting his bowels discharge everywhere. So they're standing outside the door because you know you don't want to bother the king, especially while he's taking a dump. So they wait, and then they wait some more, and they're looking at each other and they're thinking to themselves like, "Well, gee, maybe the king should have eaten enchiladas for dinner." You know, and they're just kind of looking at each other and they're waiting, and after a while they start thinking to themselves, "I wonder what's happening." And it says here in verse 25 that they waited until they became worried. Other translations will say that they waited until they became embarrassed. Think about it. Think about how foolish you must look waiting outside of this room. You, the servants, who are supposed to be taking care of the king and protecting the king, waiting outside of the room because you're afraid that he's taking care of business not bothering to knock on the door or ask how he's doing while other people are passing by the hallway and you're waiting for your king to come out while he's dead on the floor inside. How foolish do they look? So they open the door and they find out that they're dead. The king is dead. The guy that they have dedicated their lives to serve is dead. So what's the moral of the story? Well, if your master is dead and he's the one that you're serving, you're a fool. Who serves a dead thing? No one. Right? Does anyone serve a king that's dead? What's that king going to do for you? Nothing. He's not going to do anything for you. What if your God isn't real and you're trying to serve a God that isn't real? What's he going to do for you? Nothing. See, Non-Christian, here's what God has to say to you tonight. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, you might not realize it, but the thing that you're banking your life on will not fulfill you. See, you might think that money fulfills you. It won't. You might think that prosperity and happiness will fulfill you. It won't. You might think that your own personal health will fulfill you. It will not. Um, This afternoon, I found out news that my godfather passed away. He is not a Christian. He banked his whole life on his own wealth. He was a self-made man, came as an immigrant with nothing, worked his way through USC Medical School, became a pharmacist, and retired very early in age. Very wealthy. And he carries none of that with him to hell. See... Non-Christian, 10 out of 10 people die. You can't avoid it. So you have to ask yourself very seriously whether the master that you have is one worth serving. See, Jesus is the only master who dies for you so that you can have eternal life. And here's the reality, that every knee will bow before him, that every tongue will confess. And here's the truth. If you're banking on a reality that you want to be true, You're in for a rude awakening. I think you know it. John Piper gives a story in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, of an old man that sat on the front row of his father's church when he preached every single morning. Now this man was very stoic and hardened in heart. He didn't want to hear anything about the gospel. But he would still come every single week out of obligation or, or by God's grace, I don't know. But he would stand on the front seat every single morning arms crossed, scowling at the preacher, which is a really intimidating thing to do. And then one Sunday, his heart gets softened, and the gospel speaks to him, and he accepts Christ. But the image that was seared into John Piper's face as a child wasn't the fact that he accepted the gospel, but that this old man wouldn't stop weeping and saying the same phrase, over and over and over again. I've wasted it. He looked at his entire life. He looked at everything that he banked his life on. And he told himself that he wasted it. It was a waste. His, his idol, his God was completely worthless. He wasted it. And here's the plea for you non-Christian. If Jesus is real if he died for you, if he really did resurrect, if you choose to repent of your sins and believe in him, then you will not waste your life. You will not. You won't waste your life on futile things. You will have hope that you would never have with any other master. So you need to trust in him. Christian, what is the egg lawn in your life? What is the thing that you're convincing yourself is greater than it is? For those of us who have to take care of families, it might be your own provision. You might think that your job or your ability to provide or your ability to lead is your idol. That if you can nail this one aspect of your life down, then you'll suddenly be happy. You might think it's being a good wife or being a good church member even. But if it's not to serve God, as your God, if it's any other means, even if it's a good thing, right? Because it's a good thing to provide for your family, right? I'm not telling you to walk out and quit your job. It's a good thing. But the moment that you start to consider those good things to be higher than the God who has created you, then you are committing idolatry. And Eglon is a dumb God to serve. So the second point is to take action. And here's the last one. To keep going. Look at verse 26. He had escaped while the servants waited. He crossed over the Jordan near the carved images and reached Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down from with him from the hill country and he became their leaders. He told them, follow me because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him, captured the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all strong and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land was peaceful 80 years. After Ehud, Shamgar's son of Anath became judge. He delivered Israel by striking down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. So what does Ehud do? Does he stop after he kills the king of Eglon? No. He finishes the job. Right? They are slaughtered so that the commands that were given in Deuteronomy 20 would be fulfilled. That you don't let a single one of them survive. And what do you see? They kill 10,000 Moabites. Not one of them escape. They're carrying out the mission until it's fulfilled. You see, we don't just kill our sins once. We have to keep putting it to death. Our sin nature will continue to persist until we die or until Jesus comes again. And so long as our sin nature persists, we have to persist. And we have to consistently strike it down again and again and again. We have to mortify it. We have to wipe it out. We have to put sin to death. And we have to gouge our eyes out. See, you're never going to be done But you can rest in God who will complete his work. So here's some encouragement for you, Christian. Look at verse 28. What does Ehud tell them? Follow me, because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. See, does he say, hey guys, we have to go and kill the Moabites? No. He speaks with finality. Right? He says, The Lord has handed them over to you. So then fight. So Ehud is doing something different than telling people, hey, we have to fight because there's lots of things at stake if we don't fight. We're going to disobey God if we don't fight. We're not going to be able to retain our own autonomy as a nation if we don't fight. So fight. No. He's saying we have the victory already. So go fight. We already won. The Lord has already handed over the Moabites to us. So go fight. And here's the good news for you, Christian. Jesus has already won. He's already won. He's already died for us. He's already conquered sin and death. We don't have to bear the burden of sin anymore because Jesus is King and He will reign forever. So we don't have to bear that burden ourselves, but we can fight with the good news of knowing That Jesus has already won. The war is already won. We have the victory. We're just carrying out the command. So we'll continue to kill sin in our lives. And we'll continue to do it until the day we die or Jesus comes. Not because we have to. Because there's terrible things at stake if we disobey Him. But out of confidence that Jesus has won. That He has the victory for us. And here's the truth. Ehud uses a sword and he kills the king of Egalon. Well, who is the word? Jesus. And the good news is that Jesus has already stabbed sin and death. And sin and death is already dead, lying on the floor. So rejoice in that truth. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. That you didn't just leave us to wallow in our sin and continue to be enslaved in our sin and death. But you've given us the gift of your son. You've given us the gift of the gospel. That if we repent and put our faith in you, that, that sin is dead. That we've that you've completely conquered it. So we pray that you would help us. Help us to wake up to our reality. Help us to see What areas of our life that we're committing sin or idolatry against you? Give us the initiative to take action, and help us to keep going in perseverance, because we know that you'll continue to sustain us from one degree of glory to the next. So we thank you in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, be sure to encourage one another as we go.